Okay, all right. Now, howdy, Huda Thunkers. This is Zeb, the host of the Huda Thunker podcast. This is episode 121, titled Flying Squid or Flying Cephalopods. I don't know which one we're going to name it. I have to, I have about, I have till tomorrow morning to figure it out, but one of the two. Flying Squid basically is the easier one to understand, but Cephalopods is a cooler. Maybe to go squid. I don't know. I'll ask my fiance and whatever she helps me decide. Anyway, before we get into the main topic, let's do go over that recommendation segment. This week, I recommend you watch History Channels alone. Yeah, I said History Channel. I usually hate a lot of what History Channel cranks out. I love their old stuff on like the Nazis and older wars and stuff. Um, but ever since like Ancient Aliens, it's just crap mostly, except for this new wonderful show, which makes me want to check out the network, see if they have other good stuff. This new show is called Alone. It is an American adventure reality game show on history, um, which sounds weird, reality game show, but doesn't. That's it sounds weird to call it that, but I guess, yeah. It follows the self-documented daily struggles of 10 individuals, seven paired teams on season four, as they survive alone in the wilderness for as long as possible using a limited amount of survival equipment. With the exception of medical check-ins, the participants are isolated from each other and all other humans. They may quote-unquote tap out at any time or be removed due to failing a medical check-in. The contestant who remains the longest wins a grand prize of $500,000. That's half a million. The seasons have been filmed across a range of remote locations, usually in indigenous-controlled lands, including North Northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Nahul Hawapi, National Park in Argentine, Patagonia, Northern Mongolia, Great Slave Lake in the Northwestern Territories, and Chilco Lake in, in the interior British Columbia. Contestants are dropped off in a remote wilderness area far enough apart to ensure that they will not come in contact with one another. The process begins in mid to late autumn. This adds time pressure because you know what happens after autumn, winter. Um, it gets a lot harder to survive in the winter and food becomes more scarce. Although terrains may differ in each contestant's location, the drop-off zones are assessed, they check them out earlier on, and advance to ensure that similar distribution of local resources is available to each contestant. <clears throat> and they're so far away from each other, I think the one, most recent one I watched with Grizzlies, they had air, air horns to help get the Grizzlies away, and I don't think they hurt each other. Contestants each select 10 items of survival gear from a pre-approved list of 40 and are issued a kit of standard equipment, clothing, and first aid emergency supplies. They are also given a set of cameras to document their daily experience and emotions. Attempting to live in the wild for as long as possible, the contestants must find food, build shelters, and endure deep isolation, physical deprivation, and psychological stress. Contestants are warned that the show might last for up to a year. So I think the longest they've gone is like 110 days. It's a long time to be in the wilderness completely alone. I don't know how frequent those uh, check-ins are, but that's that's not enough. They're really alone. Unlike most reality TV shows, Alone is completely unscripted. It is the most realistic reality show I've ever seen. And it might sound boring to some, but if you have an interest in the outdoors at all, I, I promise you're going to enjoy it Alone. The winner of season six was on Joe Rogan Experience, and that is how I heard about this show at all. I think they have, they put out seasons on Netflix every once in a while. Alone makes me want to build a prehistoric subterranean dwelling in my backyard, set up fish traps, try some to make my own 
bow to go hunting. It unlocks a very specific kind of curiosity and call to adventure. But what the participants go through is not easy. It is one of the most difficult challenges anyone can undertake. Nature and isolation have a way of bringing all the things you subconsciously ignore or distract yourself from to the forefront of your mind. Aside from the physical challenges of predators, hypothermia, and starvation, these people are put through mental a mental gauntlet of pain and stress. And some of them just cannot take it. They start cracking and going nuts right there on the show. Minor spoiler here. I'm uh, watching season eight now. One guy um, said in the first few days of his trip that he will miss his family and that his young daughter passed away not too long before he went on alone. Well, just a few weeks into his stay, um, after displaying some very impressive survival skills, he turned to face the camera and gave a speech that brought me to tears. He talked about his daughter's passing and how he couldn't face that pain ahead or head on without his wife and son by his side, while other contestants suffer severe starvation, some losing over 60 pounds and injury. Uh, this guy walked away from 500,000, half a million in good physical health, and I didn't blame him. Um, so I rarely judge these people for tapping out because it just seems so damn difficult. So watch alone. I know that was a quite the long recommendation segment, but watch alone. It's a great show. Um, listen to the podcast with Joe Rogan where he interviews a guy who won because it's, it's fantastic. Now for the main event. In 1947, there was a Scandinavian expedition that included six explorers out at sea, specifically in the Pacific Ocean. These six men saw something that had previously been undocumented and took them by surprise. As they sped across the world's largest ocean they, with their boat, they kept noticing squid on the roof. This is particularly puzzling because squid are known to stay in the depths of the ocean. Some species stay so deep that they are only seen dead and washed ashore. They saw these poor creatures being baked by the sun's rays atop their vessel's roof and try to find out how they got there. They looked up at the sky as if, you know, did they rain down from the from the sky, these sea creatures? Uh, but of course, they saw no such thing. Fun fact, though, sometimes fish, jellyfish, and other sea creatures do, quote-unquote, rain down, but that is due to heavy-duty vortex winds that suck up large amounts of seawater at a time and then deposit them across great distances. I know this sounds crazy, but it is a real thing. I have a link to it on the, in the, on the blog. I remember I heard about it on the Weather Channel. It, it can rain fish. Uh, that is not what, this, what was happening here, though, not with the squid. These squid were not raining down from the sky. If there were no squid raining down from the sky, then how did these deep-sea dwellers get there? All of a sudden, one of the six explorers spotted something out of the corner of his eye. It was something flying above the waves. As you could probably guess by the name of the podcast, either Flying Squid or Flying Cephalopod. Still haven't figured it out by the time I'm recording. He called it his he called his fellow explorers, and they all gazed out at numbers of squid gliding through the air at about 50 meters or about 55 yards at a time. So they can fly for over half of a football field at a time. When these explorers reached land again, they tried telling people, but can you imagine how that went? But no one believed them. You probably don't believe me on the podcast. You're probably going to Google it if you're listening. But they were telling people that sea creatures that had no bones, let alone wings, were soaring through the air at about half the length of a football field. Uh, but then the world began to take notice. You know, they, they didn't believe them at first, but then other sightings started popping up. Other sailors started to look out of the windows of their motorboats and see squid flying next to their boats and keeping pace with their engines. That's really fast. Sea biologists began filing reports of captive squid fleeing their tanks somehow 
when they weren't looking. And this was really happening. <laughs> then the camera, be- or the camera became more of a household item and photo evidence was taken of squid freaking flying through the air. This blew my mind. I found it out on a TED Talk, really short TED Talk video. Blew my mind. F- squid can fly. So now the world believes those six Scandinavian explorers, or at least some people did. I myself didn't hear about this phenomenon, phenomenon, phenomenon until that five-minute TED Talk. But how and why would squid fly? That's we get a little bit more interested in. Their physical makeup is so different from other flying creatures. One would think flying into the air would be an invitation for birds to just easily go, ooh, some calamari, <laughs> and, and easily just pick them out of there, uh, taste the little morsels out of the sky. It is important to note that not all squid species can fly. In fact, most of them cannot. Only a select few species can take flight. But all squid do use the same method of propulsion to get around. Squid use uh, their mantle. That's like the largest part of their body that we typically, when you look at a squid, you're like, that's its head. Kind of looks like a big, like, I don't know, a big hat on their head. Uh, that's their mantle. And they use that to suck up surrounding water. And they use this massive mantle muscles to push out the water at high velocity near where we think their mouth is. And that is their mouth. So they suck it up into their head, what looks like their head, and shoot it out their mouth holes. <laughs> at like the base of their tentacles. So they are basically water jetpack creatures. And that is why they're always been swimming backwards from the vantage point of their tentacles. So their cone heads or mantles are always in the front when they are traversing the ocean. Um, it's hard to picture this just through audio, but on the blog, I do give some good examples. They suck it up into their head and they shoot it out down towards like their mouth, aka their butts. I think they, I should have looked that up. Do they use their butts as their mouths and their mouths as their butts? Do they have other holes? I don't know. Anyway, but (laughs) that's how they get around. And that sort of explains how they can fly. This method of propulsion is also how they breathe inside that giant mantle are gills and when they are forcing water over those gills, they're supplying them with fresh oxygen. Most squid use this method of movement to swim away from predators or to hunt their prey, but some use it to take flight out here in the Earth's atmosphere where you and I are listening to this right now. Um, unless some of you are listening underwater, which would be cool. I don't think that's ever happened, at least not with this podcast. The difference being that once a squid breaks the barrier between dense water and light air, their acceleration changes. It increases a lot. Uh, these creatures move around at about 10 kilometers at 6.2 miles per hour in the water. But once they reach the thin air, they go from zero to a hundred real quick. No, zero to a hundred kilometers per hour or zero to 62 miles per hour in just one second. Keep in mind, these are tiny squid. These aren't like giant squid. These are, they, they look like about the size of a pencil if I had to guess. At uh, 40 kilometers per hour or 29 miles per hour, Uh, The squid creates an aerodynamic lift. This is where their head flaps, uh, little head flappy thingies, come into play. And also their weird cephalopod characteristics. So once they get that little aerodynamic lift, then they can sort of glide and, and control how they fly. Once again, more pictures on the blog here. But I'll explain. Their head flaps act as like a steering mechanism, while their muscular hydrostats or tentacles act as wings. This is almost too weird to comprehend, but just look at a cephalopod, octopus, squids, cuttlefish, nautilus, etc. They are so different from us evolutionarily speaking that their behavior and abilities seem alien. So they're not like humans. But what they do is a squid's tentacles 
or muscular hydrostats or are hydro muscular hydrostats that what that means is they have connective tissue that we, we find it really hard to comprehend but this connective tissue can stay firm with muscular tension so what they do is they take their tentacles they touch them together and they get all gooey and then they stretch it out and all that oops, hit my lamp once they stretch out because <laughs> i'm doing, making hand motions if it's going to help <laughs> once they stretch out their tentacles with all that gooey stuff they can use muscle tension to sort of flap them open like a wing how terrifying is that <laughs> um they sprawl out their tentacles in a rigid formation and basically create wings in an instant I had no idea this crap existed. So to me, that is cool, but also terrifying. I start imagining imagining flying vampire squid soaring through the sky to suck my blood. Fun fact, the vampire squid is an actual species, and it looks really scary. It's a, it's a deep sea dweller, so you don't see it very often. Um, they don't, I mean, they don't hunt humans or anything, but they look really scary because they're like bright red with a super beautiful bright blue eye. And uh, all of their that, that that muscular hydrostats of a vampire squid, you can see it very easily. It almost looks like a big dress that they're 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 they have at the bottom of their bodies, <clears throat> and their tentacles are terrifying because they have huge talons coming out of them like spines. So they're scary to look at, but they're they cause they pose no threat to humans. Their muscular hydrostatic tentacle wing thingies make up the bulk of the winged force for these flying squid, but those head flaps which are typically used for gentle swimming and directional maneuvering are now used as a second set of wings out in the open air which is pretty cool <clears throat> also that uh vampire squid i talked about definitely not one of the flying ones they stay down in the deep but uh i just thought i'd say that because i keep imagining flying squid sucking my sucking my blood but most squid can fly as high as six meters that's 20 feet above the water that's really freaking high <laughs> but they don't most stay close to the water as possible to travel as far as they can horizontally and you know also for other reasons although they haven't been to they haven't we haven't seen too many flying squid sightings um the thought is that they stay close to the water surface so that they can easily dip back in for more fuel biologists also think they might stay close to make a quick getaway from those would-be bird predators that i was talking about earlier um because the bird's not going to go too far in the water some do some cormorants deep dive deep down for some fishies um but anyway it's a good getaway that's why they stay close to the water so that's the how but what about the why why would a squid decide to take flight some think they are fleeing from a nearby predator since they are seen near ships they might perceive our human vessels as predators take flight to get away from it um this would be quite an effective strategy could you imagine um it from a fish's perspective trying to eat one of these squids it's about to secure a meal this fish it's about to eat this squid and all of a sudden it just juts out into a realm that is virtually inaccessible to you to this fish so <laughs> it would be like you or i going to take a bite out of a cheeseburger and then watching it as it just slips into a different dimension just slips into the fourth dimension just poops <laughs> so it's a pretty good escape strategy um because fish can hardly go into the into the atmosphere the the thin air atmosphere hardly at all but squid, these squid can just boop, boop, shoo, and just pass on right on by. Others suggest the flying squid, uh, the squid fly, to save energy on their migration patterns. It takes less energy to zip through the air at 60 miles per hour than it does to slowly sludge through the thick water. The other thought is that smaller squid take flight to get away from larger squid. 
you know, squids cannibalize each other. Nice, nice camaraderie there. The larger and older squid eat the smaller and younger squid. So perhaps it's a thing where the smaller squid always use it, you know, to benefit themselves. It's like a, an essential part of growing up for a squid. You got to learn how to fly, Timmy. If you don't, your Uncle Paulie's going to eat you. Something like that. Sort of familiar to bullying at the adolescent age of humans, squid avoid being victimized by the larger squid because they can soar faster and farther than the large squid. So it's like the harder they fall type deal. Whatever the reason, I find it mind-blowing that squid can fly. And if I ever see it in the wild, I'll probably start geeking out immediately. Just looking at it like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. But also get like a, a badminton racket and just get out of here if it comes at me. Just boom. Just, <laughs> just hit it, turn it into like Swiss cheese. <laughs> ah, get out of here, flying squid. Um, but anyway, thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Uh, until next time. And that's my flying squid episode. Woohoo! Thank you.